this week on The Futurists. Most people have only heard the word metaverse in the last year, particularly when Facebook changed its name to Meta to sort of canonize that new word. Yeah. We've all been hearing this word for now coming on to 30 years, right? Because Snow Crash was released 30 years ago. And that's sort of the first time that word became codified. Before exactly. that, of course, we called it cyberspace. And yeah. there's there's a whole history that goes back 110 years to an E.M. Forster short story called The Machine Stops which mm. is really the first time someone plants this idea of a connected human space. They are still pursuing the basic things that they learned. And of course, cool. the first basic thing that they learned was that it's not about the technology, it's yeah. about the people. Hey there, welcome back. It's The Futurists with my co-host, Brett King, and yours truly, Rob Tursik. Every week we convene this program to interview somebody who is thinking about and building the future. And today, just before we jump into it, Brett, I wanna talk about that word futurist. You know, yeah. you use that word shamelessly. You're talking about yourself as a futurist. Yeah, I know, but there's, there's some of us, some of the futurists that I, I work with, guys like Mike Walsh, for example, who we need to get on the show. You know, my, Mike, actually is not a big fan of the word futurist. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, but I, I, you know, my definition of a futurist, right? Tell me. It means never being wrong today. <laughs> yeah, great. I love that. Uh, you know, I, I'm a reluctant futurist. Everybody calls me that. So I suppose I've sort of embraced the term, but reluctantly in the sense that I'm not quite sure that's how I designate myself. I tend to think of myself as a strategist because in the context of business planning, uh, forecasting is essential. You have to have the ability to forecast. You have to have a little creativity around the scenarios that you put together. Um, and then you have to have some analytic capability to justify those scenarios, figure out what trends are actually gonna influence them and shape them. Um, I'm not quite sure that adds up to being a futurist. Uh, but of course, on this show, we have a little bit different definition, which is that a futurist is somebody who doesn't just think about or talk about the future. I, it's somebody I, that actively builds the future. Yeah, I think, um, you know, if you if you look back at the work we've done, um, you know, most recently, some of the people we've interviewed, um, you know, um, Brad Templeton, David Orban, et cetera, uh, there's, there's something that a lot of futurists have in common, which is we're in a hurry to get to the future. You know, I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's, I think if you want to say what embodies a futurist, it's, you know, we, we want to push or pull the world towards that, that potential um, that is possible. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's a large part of it, but um, so the, other, the opposite the other, of a yogi, a yogi is somebody who's very in the present moment. Right. Uh, the uh, other yeah. thing I think is sort of core um, to, to this is um you know, it, it depends whether you sort of take that engineering path or more the intellectual philosophical path. But um, a lot of this is like trying to take what would typically have been thought of as science fiction mm -hmm. and operationalize it or execute on it. So um, yeah. it's sort of short-term sci-fi, but it's things that are imminently achievable within the next, say, 30 or 50 years, whichever the, the time frame is. So, But the thing is that that's getting more you, and more possible. You won't be around to be, to be held accountable. Oh, I hope so, <laughs> because one of the things we're working on is immortality, right? So... <laughs> Well, this Anyways. week we have a futurist, uh, somebody who I hold in the highest regard. He's been a friend for a very long time and actually is the very first person I ever met 
who designated himself a, a futurist and is well understood for that. Uh, he's written a number of books, eight different books, all future oriented. Many of them are really good, really worthwhile reading, especially augmented reality, which will tell you all about the next big thing in the tech world. He's also a TV personality in Australia, where he lives now, uh, on the Australian ABC, not the US ABC owned by Disney, but the Australian broadcasting company where he runs the program, The New Inventors. He's been a, a mentor to a number of startup companies. He's also an early stage investor. He writes award-winning columns for The Register and Cosmos. So here's a prolific thinker about the future, but that's not all, Brett. Our guest, Mark Pesci, also invented the future. He's one of the very first people to conceptualize and actually build the programming language for 3D on the web. So really one of the original OG metaverse experts. Awesome. Mark Pesci, welcome to the future. Mark, Thank welcome. you very much, Robert. Thank you very much, Brett. What time How is it you- in Australia? It's early. It's just after 9 a.m. Yeah. So, you know, it's early on a Saturday morning here, but I'm always happy to talk to the two of you. How you long have you been in my mind? You guys Sorry. are bending my mind. We've got an Australian. We've got an Australian in the United States and an American in Australia right now. And I'm trying to figure out which time zone everybody's on. We're ahead, all Brett. just we're all just citizens of the world, my friend. That's how we should be thinking. But um, Mark, how long have you been in Oz? It's almost 19 years now. It'll be 19 wow. years in October. There you go. Well, so that's a, you know, I mean, I've been offshore from Oz for 23 years. So, um, you know, Hong Kong, then Dubai, then then New York. But um, yeah. Wow. It's, and, it's, and you're in, it's been an interesting ride. It has and you're in an Sydney or? Yes, um, very much. Okay. Very good. I was guessing with ABC. Um, yeah. Studios up there. So it could, could conceivably be Melbourne, but but it's, you know, generally things are still run out of Sydney now. Yeah. Well, I'm a Melbourne boy, went to Melbourne High. So that's my claim to to fame from from the Melbourne days. But great to have you on, man. Thank you. What people used to say about Australia is that it's sort of like California before they messed up California. And now you can say uh, you can say Australia is a little bit like the future of California in the sense that the place is on fire half the year. Yeah. And we're only on yeah. fire for about a third of the year at this point, yeah. thanks to climate change. Uh, yeah, the future, it's, it's the, old, the old Gibson adage, the future is, is here. It's just unevenly distributed. So and when it comes to climate full, change, that's certainly the case right now. I think we're seeing that globally. Yeah, that's so, right. You're yeah. Yeah, Australia is, is always described as the canary in the coal mine when it comes to climate, in part because the geography of Australia makes climate extremes more extreme. Mm. But weirdly, New Zealand has a perfectly temperate climate, doesn't it? So the funny thing is this morning I woke up and one of my friends who moved to New Zealand right before the pandemic started sent me a shot at the end of his driveway. He lives in Wellington, which is quite hilly, and the hill has come down. (laughs) So if you think about, Robert, what happens to us in the canyons, when I used to live in the canyons, same as you do, when it rains too much, the canyon sides bulge and then they, they basically just pour into the street. That's what's happening to him because they're getting the same La Nina that we're getting here in Australia. And Australia is about to have its third La Nina year, which is extremely rare. Sydney has gotten and will end this year with the highest rain level ever recorded. We have had three oh. massive floods already this year. Yeah, so, so, so you guys have to quit griping about the, fi- the the fires because actually you're getting plenty of water now. The, the floods no, it, started it, it, when they put the fires out. So that's how it yeah, worked. Yeah, that's terrible. That's a terrible cycle too because then there's nothing in the ground to hold the soil in place. So exactly. it washes away. No, it's a, it's a significant problem. Um, and wow. Australia would be the perfect, um, also the perfect climate for, for example, for going renewable. 
you know, we've already had the success of uh, the Tesla battery farm in South Australia, but the New South Wales and Victorian grids are you know, particularly unprepared for, um, you know, the the coming demands on the energy systems there because of the lack of, uh, you know, support for, um, you know, green energy um, mm. and and sort of changes to the grid there. But we could go off on a tangent on that for sure. Yeah. Well, We're not doing we the climate change a, <laughs> No, but we've just had a change of government. And part of what's happened is that uh, three weeks ago, the government formally committed to the Paris Agreement to reduce emissions uh, by 43% by 2030. And signing that piece of paper seemed innocuous, but in fact, what it's doing is it's now backward propagating through the entire energy generation and distribution. Excellent. So the capital is now aligning around being able to deliver on that, which was the thing that was missing from this. So I am quite hopeful about that. Uh, Excellent. Good to hear. Good to hear. Now, some people say that the one way to mitigate uh, climate change is to build virtual worlds. And that is a completely graceless and inelegant way to transition to a topic that I know is near and dear to your heart, Mark which is virtual worlds. Uh, so for those who are listening, uh, if you can remember, you have to go in the Wayback Machine here, a thing called VRML from what, 1993, Mark? Is that it? I'm sure that's when we first crossed paths at February, February 1994 specifically, but yes. Okay, okay. Tell us about VRML and Tony Parisi, who was a guest on the show just a couple of weeks back. Yeah, so Tony and I met in the end of 1993 when he had moved to San Francisco. And I remember visiting him and his wife when they were moving into their apartment because they were just moving to town. And he said, so Mark, what do you do? And three hours later, when I explained this crazy quest that I was on to create a 3D interface to this very new thing called the World Wide Web that most people hadn't even heard of yet, much less used. He was like, oh, that sounds fun, let's do it. And we put our brains together. And within a couple of weeks, we had a prototype of a 3D interface to this thing that, again, no one had really used yet. But we then reached out to Sir Tim Berners-Lee, the father of the web, and said, look, we've done this 3D interface. You had mentioned somewhere that you'd like that. We have it. And he said, well, could you come to the big conference we're planning in May and show everyone? Wow. And that was the first international conference on the World Wide Web, basically 300 researchers all gathered in CERN in the room where they announced the Higgs boson 20 years later, hmm. basically all collaborating on this vision for what we knew in our heart would be the universal human library, right? And so I've never been to and think I will probably never get to go to another conference like that, where there was such a sense of shared purpose. And, you know, the idea that the technology was already here, we didn't have to do much more than what had already been done. All we needed to do was to scale it. And pretty much everyone went out from that and evangelized. And that was pretty much when the tipping point began, particularly within academic and some commercial institutions to start bringing content onto the web. But your specific focus there was 3D. So as most people were, were just trying to get their arms wrapped around a page of text, uh, you were already one or two steps down the line thinking about 3D. It was it all vector at that point? It, you know, it wasn't, you didn't have texture maps and skins and stuff and things. Oh, no, we had that. We had the whole, so the enabling technology here to make all of that possible on a very ordinary PC, because again, Tony and I were not rich. We didn't have access to the kinds of sort of several hundred thousand to million dollar graphic supercomputers that were used to create most virtual reality. But there was some enabling tech, which was software rendering engines. And if people remember where the first time they saw maybe Castle Wolfenstein or Doom, mm -hmm. these are games that are sort of 30 years old. That I was very fast. 
Yeah, very fast 3D on machines that were not very fast because they used a lot of very careful mathematical shortcuts. Mm -hmm. Well, those shortcuts were generalized and put into software packages. And we had access to one of them called Render Morphics Reality Lab. People today would know it by another name because Render Morphics Reality Lab was purchased by Microsoft and became Direct3D. So oh, wow. it now it's in there. every history. PC and every Xbox in the world is running Direct3D. The very first application that was built in Rendermorphics, now Direct3D, that wasn't built by Rendermorphics was the very first VRML browser. That's incredible. Very so that's cool. just proof that old software never dies. It just becomes a part of the next release of Windows. Exactly. <laughs> And it was the enabling technology because it allowed us to do things on a really ordinary PC yeah. that people wouldn't even have thought of. So it wasn't just vector graphics, it was fully realized worlds. And we were able to show those from the very beginning. And the very first big public demo that we gave, which was at the SIGGRAPH conference later on that year, sort of July, August. So we took a single room exhibition out of the US Holocaust Memorial Museum called Daniel's Story, which is a boy who is living in the Warsaw Ghetto. And he's leaving notes on the wall telling his story. We digitized that space and then presented it linked into the web at SIGGRAPH that year. Super cool. So almost 30 years ago, you were pioneering techniques and actually techniques that really got popular quick because I remember clearly I was hooked on Doom in 1994. And I mean, I played it like every day for three months or so. Uh, and remember the coders that went to did that and built that, they went on later after Quake and so on to, uh, to create Oculus, you know, so they're building 3D worlds yeah, yeah. right now. Yeah, uh, so a direct I, I mean, I definitely was a Doom and a and a um, you know Quake engine guy, but I I, exactly. I, I, I uh, my my the big gaming like virtual reality thing for me was Half Life. I think you know the mm -hmm. game changer. Um, yeah. But yeah, and now Mark, and again, you're actually going to team up with Tony Parisi to create a new podcast. So can you oh, tell really? us about that? Can we sneak that into this we yeah. a little plug for your next venture? Yeah, so Tony and I, in fact, are working really hard right now on a six-episode series we're calling A Brief History of the Metaverse. Fantastic. The idea here awesome. being that awesome. most people have only heard the word metaverse in the last year, particularly when Facebook changed its name to meta to sort of canonize that new word. Yeah, We've all been hearing this word for now coming on to 30 years, right? Because Snow Crash was released 30 years ago. And that's sort of the first yeah. time that word became codified. Before exactly. that, of course, we called it cyberspace. And yeah. there's yeah. there's a whole history that goes back 110 years to an E.M. Forster short story called The Machine Stops, which mm. is really the first time someone plants this idea of a connected human space mm. in the, the mind and in literature. And we just in the first episode, we trace through how it works in terms of the literature all cool. the way to Neuromancer. And then we take a turn. We say, look, at Neuromancer was so effective as an evocation that people actually started to build it. And then we bring in Chip Morningstar and Randy Farmer, who created Habitat, which was the very Yeah, first, I remember it well. Yes, the very first virtual world. And they are still at it. They are still pursuing the basic things that they learned. And of course, cool. the first basic thing that they learned was that it's not about the technology. It's yeah. about the people. Yeah, the community. That's right. This is where they're getting it wrong today. We talked to Tony about this. Uh, you know, he was here. He was telling us a little bit about his new venture with Neil Stevenson at Lamina One. 
And we talked a little bit about the way uh, the current crop of metaverses seem to be getting it wrong. They're focused on business model first and community last. And, yeah. and if you look at the incredible durability of Second Life, it's entirely attributable to the fact that the they community. made they made yeah. tools that make the community fun. You know, they allow the community to express themselves in wacky and unpredictable ways. And then when you compare that to like Horizons World, uh, Facebook's shopping mall, uh, it's it's astounding. You know, the, how do they think anyone's going to find that appealing to build this sort of lookalike kind of cheesy cartoon-like avatar with no legs, uh, walking around a completely controlled and contrived environment? Uh, I, I can't muster the energy to even delve into the thing. And the other metaverses that are out there today, things like Decentraland and Sandbox, they're digital ghost towns. Uh, there's, you know, no one on the server when you get there. And so there's no community whatsoever. Well, uh, but I mean, you could say you could say the same about the web in the early days, like in in 94 and 95, you know, that was how we would have described the web. You know, well, you didn't really have a people experience on the web, but what you did have was an incredible ferocity of launching. I remember really clearly in 94, 95, if you went to Netscape's What's Cool, the list of new things was becoming unmanageable. And Yahoo hired a whole team of like librarians. So you had a sense that people were doing stuff because there was a proliferation and it it was kind of like early stage, um, you know, kind of like algorithmic growth in terms of the number of pages that were being generated on a daily basis. So there was a science of life. All right. And then um, and we were doing games. And with games, you found this incredible untapped or unmet uh, need to connect people together. So people definitely craved the connection. Um, but but I think now with the metaverse, if it's not community first, it's going to land with a thud. And then it's going to be really hard to get a community there later. But, Mark, we're not letting you talk. We're just talking on top of you. Go for it. <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I, I feel that with Decentraland and the other sort of purely Web3 based in other words, blockchain-based and really land-sale-based virtual mm-hmm. worlds, that these are basically schemes to get people to buy land on the promise that enough people are going to buy land and come and live in these spaces, that these, this land is going to be valuable. And I think that that yeah. is a chicken and egg model where there is no chicken and there's only a virtual egg. Yeah, it's so like the 1920s in Florida. <laughs> that's going to be a bit problematic. I think with Meta, the bigger issue is that the name change is effectively an elaborate misdirection play to shine the light away from the fact that Facebook is without question the most socially toxic organism of the 21st century. And as long as you can change the name and get people to look elsewhere, oh my God, Mark is blowing $10 billion on this thing that can't happen. Who cares? He's still making $100 billion a year on the advertising revenue by polluting the social space. And really that's my own feeling about this. I know other people feel very differently about it. Well, I, you know, I think if if you look at, um, you know, Zuckerberg's thinking on the metaverse, you know, one of one of the problems that Silicon Valley has is, you know, if you look at San Francisco and LA and and so forth right now, you know, we have this massive problem of inequality. It, it, well, it's all throughout the US, right? Um, but the the tech boom has contributed to that. And there's a there's a view in in some circles within Silicon Valley that, you know, while these people can live in pod houses, but they'll they'll be able to live their best life in the metaverse. It's not like that's not a solution to yeah, that's the problem, Ready Player right? One scenario. Yeah, exactly. The, scenario, the stacks right? in Chicago, and yeah, I'm living yeah, in a absolutely. container, but I sure have a good time on the internet. I'm a rock star. No, we'll have UBI for your for your 
you pizzas delivered by drone and and you could play all day in in the metaverse it's like no it's like we we need something we need a better model than that okay he's wheeling out the ubi so i think it's time for us to change topics hey so listen watch out for the the brief history of the metaverse a brief history of the metaverse podcast from mark pesci and from tony parisi both guests on the futurist and that podcast will be coming out when mark when should we look for it It'll land on the 15th of September on nextbillionseconds.com and just on the Next Billion Seconds podcast feed. Cool. Awesome. We'll put it out on our Fed too. Yeah, yeah. yeah great. Oh, excellent. Thank you. Now, in parallel with all of that, at the same time, and actually fueling a lot of what you were just talking about, Mark, and the history of 3D and VRML and the metaverse and what we used to call cyberspace, were companies like Evans and Sutherland. And I remember the weird mashup of all these cyber arts people hanging around with these kind of like military, you know, military industrial vendors uh, from Evans and Sutherland and other uh, other companies. And it was just a weird culture clash. They weren't so far apart because at the core, everybody's a geek. So that, that part we had in common. Uh, but at the time, those companies had the rendering power. So if you really wanted to do immersive reality of any kind of sort, you know, it just happened to be a fight fighter jet simulation. Um, but that ties into a topic that you and I've been discussing the last couple of days, which is uh, the the deep intertwined and kind of weird and interesting history uh, and, and present of internet technologies and consumer technologies intertwined with military technology. Uh, we see examples of that every well, day. the internet came from DAPA, right? 100%. Well, we should unpack that story a little, but yeah, that's what people always point to, right? So the, the Defense Advanced Research Project uh, has a number of credits. It's not just the internet, ARPANET, the precursor to today's internet, but also uh, mobile phones and uh, and space and satellites for communication. Right, spread, spread spectrum technology that's the basis of cellular technology absolutely that's right so that all came from from uh, uh darpa and darpa's mission is interesting the, the idea of darpa was after the sputnik satellite the u.s military never wanted to be caught off guard again so their job is to look at all the weird and wonderful new technologies that are coming and evaluate them for either a defensive or offensive use and mainly the goal there is to keep people safe uh, but they have come up with some interesting uh you know some interesting weapons as well their big new focus is biotech. And they have a whole office now called the uh, um, um, Biology as Technology, which I think is fascinating. We'll have to get some of those folks on the show. But Mark, comment a little bit about that because that was fun. We were chatting about that last night. Yeah, and I think what I want to do is actually expand the, the uh, palette a little bit and go back a little bit further because while I think we do see this relationship as a modern relationship, it is not a modern relationship. The most important military development of the last thousand years is gunpowder. Gunpowder began as fireworks in China. It began yeah. as a technology yeah, yeah. of entertainment. And it was several hundred years of entertainment before someone in China realized, oh, we could use this for a rocket. And then I believe it was the Portuguese who managed to get it from the Chinese and brought it to Europe. And one thing led to another. So we have this idea that a lot of these technologies actually do begin as entertainment technologies and then become military technologies. Then let's go to the Victorian era. We have this massive industrialization. We're using machines for everything to improve the standard of life for people, right? To increase the speed of transport, increase agricultural productivity, make clothing cheaper, all of these different things. None of that gets fully weaponized until the Great War. 
right? Yeah. And then bam. And then we have yeah. this 30-year period of war and technological mm -hmm. acceleration. And then we end at the other side at the end of the Second World War. And it's not so much that it stops at that point. There is a lot of money going into defense during the Cold War period. Mm -hmm. And it's then at the end of that Cold War period, and all three of us are old enough to remember exactly that point when the Berlin Wall comes down, that the nations in the West get the peace dividend, right? Because the right, money right. stops pouring into defense. Southern California goes into a severe recession because so many of the jobs in Southern California were defense industry related. And it took basically a full decade for LA to reorganize its economy on a non-defense basis. And this is exactly the pivot point that we see now because that starts around 1990. And then Interesting. in 1995, you get the PlayStation. And this becomes a sort of crossover point where the leading edge of technology development and where money is going stops being defense and starts being consumer electronics. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that the market for consumer electronics was probably an order of magnitude bigger <laughs> than the market yeah. Yeah. For, def yeah. for defense. That's and so true. it is now the thing that's dragging things along. This is why the best chips you can find in the world are sitting in your late model smartphone not in yeah. military equipment, right? And, and NSA. That has massive implications for the Pentagon and for other defense departments around the world because now the tail's wagging the dog. The entertainment tail or the consumer entertainment, the consumer electronics tail is wagging the military dog. They're playing catch up. Uh, we see evidence of that. You know, For instance, right now in the war that's happening in Ukraine, uh, the Russian military, uh, one of the reasons Russian generals are getting targeted uh, by drone attacks is that they're using regular cell phones. Uh, yeah. and they have to use regular cell phones because they're more reliable than the military equipment that they have for communications. Uh, that probably has something to do with corruption and people not actually procuring the right things and so forth. But at any rate, there, the consumer tech is ahead of the military tech, just to uh, kind of confirm your point there. Um, Mark, we need to take a little break here because we do have sponsors for this show. And so we're going to make a little pause now. But folks, keep listening because in just a couple minutes, we'll be back with Mark we'll be Pesci back. on The Futurists. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome back to The Futurists. Uh, Robert Tursek and I are in the hosting chair with Mark Pesci today, live from Sydney, Australia. Before the break, we were talking about uh, how military development and consumer technologies have sort of been in parallel, but had various elements of um, you know, influence over time. So, so Mark, um, you know, we talked about the Great War and this sort of golden age of, uh, you know, that, that preceded um, the Great War. There was so much hope, you know, coming out of the Victorian era into the Industrial Age, you know, all, all of this hope that humanity was was pushing further. And then, bang, we we land into these, these uh, wars. And, you know, it, it's in many ways, it could be a little bit of the same thing today, not from a warfare perspective necessarily, but we are moving from this period of 
extreme optimism around technology, but we have some major issues to deal with, you know, climate change, inequality. Now we have, uh, you know, um, uh, viruses like uh, COVID and so forth. So we're entering a period of, of disruptiveness, but we also have China, um, you know, rattling the saber a, a little bit uh, regarding Taiwan. So where do you, where do you see this cycle going? And there, there's this, I think resonance here, you know, Mark Twain has the wonderful line that the future never repeats, but it does rhyme. And I want to give you an example of one of those rhymes. So in 1909, uh, Englishman named Norman Angel wrote a book called The Great Illusion, in which he indicated that a war between the great powers was extremely unlikely because all of the powers were benefiting more from the rise in international trade and they would be severely hurt by that. Now, he does this in 1909. That book is a bestseller. I think it's the bestseller that year in the UK, published in America the next year. Again, bestseller. Everyone's thinking we're entering this new golden age of enlightenment and nations won't fight. And of course, four years later, it all collapses because Germany and the UK, who are each other's largest trading partners, have the Great War. All right. Well, I'll flip forward 90 years and we have both Francis Fukuyama, who codifies it as the end of history. But we're going to go to Tom Friedman with the Golden Arches theory of history, <laughs> which the big is, Mac index. Yeah. Yes. Simply put that no two nations that have McDonald's franchises have had a war with one another. Some of the rationale for that is because McDonald's won't plant franchises in a nation until it has a lot of economic stability and political stability. And so that tends to be a marker for the low quality of belligerence of those nations. That's that not going to age well. Well, it wasn't. <laughs> it was true until February when Ukraine and Russia, which both have McDonald's in them, yeah. went to war. Right. So it yeah. didn't age in the same way that the Great Illusion didn't age. And so mm -hmm. in some ways we are seeing and. Let's face it, Brett, we all want to be optimists. I mean, to be a futurist is to be you an optimist. You have to be optimistic, yeah. No one, <laughs> no one likes a dystopian futurist. They don't get invited to parties. Yeah, <laughs> or conferences. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we are professional optimists, not because we're blind to the future, but because we're constantly tugging at the best elements of it. But I think yeah. one of the things that happens is we get blinded by our own optimism. and. Part, part of what's happening in 2022 yeah, now very true. is that our own optimism is now being tempered by the fact that people are is still as illogical and as selfish and, you know, I would call it foolish, but other people have different names for it as they have ever been. Yeah. If so, not, uh, if not um, actually increasing in irrational, um, you know, conceptualization of the world that's it's like you know ha having these conversations like you see on social media about um you know uh, let's end all vaccinations and things it, it just blows my mind some of how how we've intellectually declined as a species you know in certain elements right yeah i i feel as though this is one of the things that that 300 researchers in that room in 1994 didn't understand. We knew we were building the global library. What we didn't understand is that we were also building an ignorance amplifier. And I think if someone had explained that to us in small words, 
We might not have wanted to believe it, but it might have tempered our steps. And we probably would have built in more facility into the basic web to help people understand the quality of the truth that they were reading or mm -hmm. indulging in. Yeah, it's interesting. The web in the 90s uh, was, you know, we can look back at it as this like fabulous place because people were relatively polite. They were flame wars, but they were pretty manageable. Um, the thing is that in, in the 1990s, you had a few hundred million people using the web. I think it was less than 400 million. And um, they were the smart 400. You know, now you've got 6 billion people. So everybody else came in. Most people are new users. Like still, most people are new users of right, social media. Right. And they're also vulnerable in a lot of other ways. Uh, yeah. So, so one thing we can talk about, Mark, is how militarization has also invaded cyberspace, but not in the way people think. It's the weaponization of social media and the infiltration of social media with, um, you know, robots that can generate hostility and drive division and wedges between different groups of people and break a democracy. Uh, democracy is propaganda. All of yeah. that's been a big part of the military uh, playbook. Yeah. Yeah, it's been and, and always that we've has, been under. Right? We've been having a cold war for about ten years. We just didn't want to acknowledge it. Uh, but you know, it's be between uh, intellectual property theft and hacking, and uh, the attempts, the multiple attempts, to disrupt real-world infrastructure uh, through the network, and then the, the militarization or weaponization of social media. These are all examples of uh, concerted efforts by real people, real organizations in the real world. They're not just accidents. They don't just emerge. Uh, these are things that are deliberately done. Now, every government disavows it. Nobody takes credit for it. Uh, in Russia, they have that wonderful phrase that I share with you, Mark. Uh, political entrepreneurs. That's what they call the people who are doing the social really? media hacking. Really? <laughs> yeah. But that's a new front, right? So that's like the, the fifth column uh, is, uh, is, is, you know, um, using social media and other vectors to get to people. What's remarkable about that is back in the battle days of big media and controlled media and centralized publishing and domination of broadcast media by just a handful of companies, we had a better sense of national consensus. We had a better sense of national identity. We thought we knew who we were. We thought we knew what, what values we shared. And what we're seeing now in retrospect is national identity is a story that we tell ourselves. It's a very convincing story when it's well told, but that story can start to fragment and, um, and, and suddenly it doesn't all hold up so well once you've got a hundred different versions of that story uh, tailored for different groups. Let's talk about drones. Let's talk about the consumerization of drones. Uh, you know, when, when Obama started using drones, actually, I guess they started under George Bush, uh, but then Obama loved it because he didn't have to put boots on the ground. Yeah. And at one point we were having a war in, we were bombing eight different nations, several of whom were, were allies of ours. Um, the United States I'm referring to, not Australia. Um, but we were well, using Australia was, was participating in a lot of that too. That's true. And, you know, and we have a number of different drone programs in the United States. Uh, the uh, the CIA has, a, has a, a black drone program nobody knows anything about. And of course, then there's the military drone programs. Uh, it always seemed to me that we're going to come to regret this. And I think here we are. <laughs> here we are. You know, like suddenly it's really cheap to build a drone. Okay, the United States builds expensive drones, but a country like Turkey now has, uh, a, you know, a company back... I'm going to get this name wrong, but it's Bayraktar, and they're producing drones that are relatively cheap. Although you can't get the exact price, it ranges between one and two million dollars, and for the whole system with the ground control, five million. That's a fraction of the cost of a drone system from a U.S. vendor. So in a way, they're democratizing uh, drone technology. But these are killer drones, and they've been quite—they've been surprisingly effective in the Ukraine war. 
Yeah. And I mean, we're about to see now, as you've probably talked about on the show, we're about to see an explosion in semi-autonomous electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles, right? Yeah. So the Joby is my my favorite because it's kind of the first one that's gotten FAA. So we are seeing an explosion in that technology as well. And those are not multi-million dollar things. And so what you can see is that the price curve that we're on from the hundred million dollar, half a billion dollar US predator style drones to this two or five million dollar Turkish drone is only a midpoint down to say a hundred thousand dollar drone. Probably we'll see by oh, the end yeah. of this decade. And, and look, they're building homemade drones in the Ukraine right now. So they're building like super cheap, you know, do it yourself kind of drones. Yeah, no, they're just using like the, they're using commercial drones and they're dropping hand grenades out, yeah. out of them, you know, it's, impact it's, hand grenades and stuff. It's yeah. yeah. It's, it's like the improvised and, uh, um the improvised uh, bombs that they put in the streets. IEDs, uh, but in the from Gulf the War, air right? now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, you know, and we, I do remember reading about the fact that the Ukrainians had used some sort of commercial drone along with a camera, along with facial recognition technology to be able to recognize Russian generals in the field and direct artillery fire their way. Right. Yeah, so well, you have this combination of very off the shelf technologies that were simply being remixed into an extremely lethal form. Now, we keep comfort, comforting ourselves in the United States because we always believe that we're going to have air supremacy. It's why we, we invest so much in not just our aircraft, but also our pilot training. And uh, we're, we're chuckling at Russia's expense because they haven't really achieved air supremacy. If you had that, then those uh, Bayraktar drones, those cheap drones would be, they're utterly defenseless. They're like a one-hit job. So uh, if, if the Russians had air supremacy, there'd be no threat at all from, from those drones. But I think we might be fooling ourselves because uh, Mark, we can't stop. Talking... We can't stop drones from impacting airports in the U.S. These small commercial drones, this, right? This so, is where I'm heading. Like, this is exactly yeah. where I'm heading. I, I was chatting with Mark about uh, Palmer Lucky, another pioneer of VR. Just in a weird parallel, this conversation is full of cross references. But Palmer Lucky, who created Oculus uh, after he sold that to Facebook and then got fired by Mark Zuckerberg. He went and started a new company um, and they're focused on defense. He wants to be a defense contractor, high-end, high-tech defense contractor in the United States. Mm. And his vision is tens of thousands of drones attacking a big military um, asset like an aircraft carrier. And his view is that, you know, we have good defense systems on those ships. We'll be able to defend against the first 10,000 drones. But what happens after 20,000 or 30,000? And the idea is that, you know, it's relatively cheap, right? You can build 30,000 cheap disposable drones, knowing most of them will get shot down, but some will get through. And if you can take out a, you know, multi hundred billion dollar uh, ship, you can actually wreak some serious havoc. We we should probably call this the cicada theory of military attack, right? Because so cicadas like will emerge in the tens of billions so that the predators simply get filled up and the ones that live will breed the next generation of cicadas. Now tell me again about dystopian futurists because I really want to hear that part. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's so I just spent a lot of time with Palmer Lucky. He came to visit Australia. He has a deal that they've tied up with the Australian Defense Force to build what they're calling the XLAUV, so the Extra Large Autonomous Underwater Vehicle. Because oh, yeah. although you probably haven't heard too much about it in America, we have been unable to get a new generation of submarines, which we need badly to defend the landmass against anything that might be coming from, say, East Asia. And I won't name names here, but you can use your imagination. And we don't have a deal for that. We had a deal with the French that fell apart. We now have a deal with the Americans. The Americans say, oh yeah, we'll get your submarines in 2040. 
which is a long time from now. That's right. part of because the defense procedures around this are defense uh, procurement and construction procedures are so slow and so long term. So he wants to build us a small fleet of relatively inexpensive when we're talking X, X, uh, the XLs, I think they're six meters long. So they're not tiny, right? Mm -hmm. And they should be able to go out and autonomously scan all of the coast and keep things relatively safe, make sure the cables aren't being played with, stuff like that. Mm. And it's very compelling. And I suspect he's going to be doing a lot of business here because he's taking that idea of a lot of drones and saying, okay, we will deploy them under the water in sufficient numbers to allow Australians to feel relatively safe. And one of the interesting things you pointed out to me about, about uh, Palmer Lucky is that his approach is very different from an American defense contractor in the sense that most American defense contractors um, provide systems on a cost plus basis, which is, in other words, the government is paying them to learn how to make the product. And with a high tech product, that's a really lousy formula because you're going to end up having a company that just extends their learning curve because they're getting paid all along the way. His approach is different. So Palmer Lucky is saying, here's a system. It works. Would you like this system or would you like the next version, which is coming out in six months? He's doing it like the way we drop software releases. You know, so he's got um, he's got a, a, a planned approach to developing software and developing products. And you can have this release or you can wait for the next one. Um, he's not asking you to pay him along the way uh, to pay for his learning. Do it curve. like Tesla does. Yeah. You know. Um, but what, what's really interesting about this is, um, you know, if you look back, you know, Mark, you were talking about um, historical analogies of things like communities online. And of course, we have uh, the steam machine man of the prairies and, and uh, Rossum's universal robots. Uh, you know, we have a lot of uh, history in respect to, um, you know, the, these technologies. But drones weren't big in sci-fi. Um, it's one of those things that sci-fi sort of missed. We do have uh, some newer sci-fi, um, you know, like Neil Stevenson and others that that dealt with it, but you don't hear of drones necessarily back in the 1940s, 1950s, uh, Asimov type, um, you know, era of, of the drones. So um, it, it's interesting that such a, you know, because normally a lot of the cycle uh, of development of tech comes from sci-fi, right? But there's a reason for that, right? Because the computers that they had at that time were the size of a building exactly. and incredibly expensive. So the idea yeah. of a disposable computer was unthinkable, right? Yeah. But then when you get to George Lucas, you've got droid wars, right? And now you can have, uh, you know, kind of crappy CGI looking back at it today, not a very convincing special effect, but this idea of an army of tens of thousands of disposable robots, right? Yeah. And now what we're talking about is junk tech. We're talking about stuff the size of a shoebox, you know, that flies around and costs a couple thousand dollars yeah, yeah. designed for being disposable. Uh, but you can imagine if you were on the deck of a cruiser or an aircraft carrier, and there were literally thousands of these things blackening the sky, and you were trying to take them down with whatever system you've got, that would be quite frightening, right? That would be quite, quite a scary scenario. That's the scenario that I wonder if the United States is preparing for. You have to imagine that right now, everybody in the world is watching what's going on in the Ukraine and taking some conclusions from it. You know, back in the Civil War, in the United States Civil War in the 1860s, European uh, military experts came over to observe. And they came away unimpressed with the U.S. Army, which is not such a bad uh, assessment because U.S. Army wasn't very well trained. And we were basically just recruiting people and throwing them into the field. And so they looked at it and they said, these are you know, not very well-trained soldiers, not a very professional military. But they did notice things like the use of artillery, which changed the battlefield completely, the use of trains and telegraphs. 
And that became material. Within five years, you had the battle between the Prussians and the French, and it was all about train timetables because they took that away. And it was like, wow, we can move huge numbers of soldiers fast if we organize the trains properly. So that was a big military improvement. You have to wonder what's going to happen with tactics now coming out of this Ukraine war, because quite obviously, the idea of driving a bunch of tanks into a country, that's not really happening uh, until they get some better defense systems. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, we are seeing... um you know, we we have seen a depiction of some of this in popular um, film now, like Angel Has Fallen, that, um, you know, uh, um, Gerard Butler um, film with um, with Morgan Freeman in it, where they have the drone attack on the president, um, you know, overwhelming the Secret Service. So, but yeah, you know, it's, it's pretty interesting to see um, that, um, you know, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine has not gone the way most people thought it would be, would go. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I, I mean, <laughs> Here's here's my view as a futurist. War, war, you know, is 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 pretty unproductive as a mechanism for resolving issues. But um, when are we going to like evolve beyond warfare? Is, is sort of really my question. Yeah, but I guess the thing that we we've all we we haven't forgotten it because we never learned it. But I think that the generation who has just passed away learned was that war is also an enormous technological accelerator. Right. Enormous. Right. We remember the first the Second World War began with a cavalry charge and it ended with a mushroom cloud. Right. And so yeah. it's like you frame yeah. it like that. Now, one of the things that I think we're going to see out of this and we haven't really talked about is that underneath and invisibly, there's an enormous amount of cyber warfare that is taking place on the battlefront between Russia and Ukraine. We know that the NATO allies are supporting Ukraine in this effort, which is one reason why Ukraine systems haven't been completely overwhelmed. I know because I'm hearing it from Palmer, but really pretty much from everyone in the defense establishment that electronic countermeasures warfare is a huge area now. And you're talking about if we blacken the sky with drones, how do we knock those drones down without having to hit them with anything? How do we mm -hmm. either interrupt their communications or shoot an EMP at them? EMPs, right? yeah, that's right. And we know that they're developing non-nuclear <laughs> capacitively charged EMPs that can shoot a particular blast yeah, of electromagnetic yeah, yeah. energy. Well, and you, you probably read recently, the Russians now have this new satellite that's just following an American defense satellite. It's basically just shadowing it. And you know that thing has a way to kind of catch up and blow up uh, and take out the US. So basically they're gonna try to take out our eyes in the sky. Uh, and, and at some point in the future, they're threatening to do it. China has a similar approach. They demonstrated a satellite killer uh, so, so yeah, the one one big vector of attack now is going to be the electronic surveillance systems that govern all these robotic systems uh, that, and help and us that, target. That, that could be a huge problem for us because um, you know we could have sort of runaway space junk scenario in, in Earth orbit, Tons making it almost impossible for us to leave Earth orbit for the Kessler syndrome. We, exactly, that's it. That's it. You know, I, was, I forgot yeah. the name of it, but yeah. which of course the film Gravity was based on at the start, but. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which you, yeah. I'm, I'm obviously as a sci fi guy, I'm a space guy, you know, and I, I want right. to see us get to Mars. And I don't want, you know, us to clutter up Earth orbit to a point where we can't do that. But I want to circle back uh, to something that you mentioned a minute ago, Brett, which I think is relevant here. Uh, you know, and actually something you said, Mark. Mark, you talked about the irrational nature of warfare. And Brett, you asked the question when, when are we going to evolve past it? Certainly in the United States, if you're paying attention to this war in the Ukraine, you think it is irrational. It's like, what is this right. aging dictator thinks that he can just go push around another sovereign nation after having yeah. signed 
after having signed a treaty with them to defend them, uh, you know, he's setting all that aside and it just seems so arbitrary and self-defeating and stupid. But bear in mind, this is a resource war and this is all about oil and gas and the Donbass region, which the Russians have taken over and they're gonna defend fiercely. That's the one piece they're not likely to wanna give up anytime soon without a huge fight. That's the most oil rich area. And it's not really tapped yet. It hasn't been developed yet by the Ukrainians. And that's by design. Um, those oil reserves are extremely easy to access. And if if the Russians wanted to undercut, if the, sorry, if the Ukrainians wanted to undercut Russia's oil and energy business, it's quite possible that they could do it and they could supply the West and they could do it quite easily uh, through uh, direct lines to the West. And that's a big fear for Russia. And this is- But a why are we even fear. investing in oil anyway, right? Like, well, you know, I mean, I hear you. I hear you. But, you know, the world does run on oil right now. So that's uh, from pharmaceuticals to tires. Um, you know, just a few years back, people thought, why is China being a big bully in Tibet? And why are they you know, invading Tibet and so on? But Tibet is the right. Tibet's water tower for China. And there was simply no way they were going to let that water tower be dominated by any other country. And so they went to seize it. So one thing I start to wonder about is war zones of the future. Well, you know, I, I do, the, re, the potential for resource wars, um, you know, with climate change. Yeah, it's massive, a real thing. right? What do you think, I, Mark? I think we sit, I, I am a resident of the most resource rich nation in the world. So right. that's what I think. But the only thing we don't have is oil, but we have the largest supplies of natural gas. We have the second largest supply of lithium. We have the second largest supply of uranium. We have the largest supply Solar of Solar silica. Ore. Yep. Right. So we, we so Australia is resource rich. And I think this is one of the reasons why Australia is it's the lucky country. We call it that. But it's also, I think, a slightly nervous country. We we don't want to become an economic colony. But that said, our larger our largest trading partner for all of our resources is China. Yeah. By a long margin. Yeah. yeah. Like they say in Australia, you sell the country by the shovelful to the Chinese. Well, it was, um, I can't remember, it was an um, Australian economist um, commenting in um, the, the Age newspaper. He said, Australia is a, a third world country, but it's just gifted with all of these natural resources. Because without the natural resources, you know, what's the basis of the economy, right? So I say that as an Australian. This is like, this is really present right now. You know, this summer, uh, just, just this week, actually, uh, California, where I live, Southern California, has to cut its uh, use of the Colorado River. And that's actually affecting Nevada and Arizona and other states as well that draw water from that. That river's running dry. Last summer, I was up on the Missouri River, up in the headlands, where normally it would be rushing with uh, snow melt, but there was no snow to melt that summer. And as a result, you could walk across the Missouri River, which is a big, wide river. This summer, we saw the Rhine River, the busiest river in the world with the most traffic, the most industrial traffic, um, it got to a point where some parts of the river were unpassable because there wasn't enough water. Uh, and the same is happening right now in the Seine River in France. And so this concept of resource wars, driven by climate change, but yeah. nevertheless, resource wars, water wars. Combined at food scarcity, eco-refugees, it's, it's going to be chaos. I mean, so, yeah. Let's go back to that theory that history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. The late Bronze Age collapse, Right. 1180 BC, which was effectively when there was a combined climate change. And then all of basically right, right. all of the Mediterranean civilizations 
imploded more or less simultaneously around that because there was so, so should we get ready for sea people the sea people with drones this time <laughs> <laughs> yeah actually i feel like that would be the foundation for a very interesting hard science fiction novel about the 2040s or 2050s there's one other aspect here too the freelancers that we talked about um some of this technology is so cheap that you can have non-government actors. Uh, and I don't know how well prepared the US or other big places are for um, drone attacks by terrorists inside their own countries. I have to assume that there's a plan for this, although I don't really have any evidence to support that conclusion. Um, you know, countries that are threatened by terrorism, they're clearly sensitive to the idea. I just don't know what drone countermeasures exist. You know, what can you do to stop a drone from flying into a football stadium? And I mean, the up? easiest way is to just stop the radio signal, you know, have a, a jam, jam radio signals. But of course, you know, people can work around that. They could use the cell networks. Yeah, you could stop cell networks. Yeah, you'd have to have a range of uh, of the, those, those um, capabilities. Um, but of course, you know, you don't want everyone's mobile phones to stop working as well. I guess the point I'm making is it's an asymmetrical threat that's very yeah. hard to calculate and it complicates the scenario planning where in the past you can kind of size up your opponent, even if you didn't know that much about them, you knew what they were capable of, you knew what resources they had, and you knew which terrestrial uh, vector of attack they were likely to choose. Now threats can come from all over and they might not come from a, a specific country or even a named group. Well, you know, uh, particularly when you start thinking about AI as yeah. well in the mix of this, you know, um, you know, we do know that, um, you know, particularly in the banking space today, that, uh, you know, criminals, um, you know, particularly in places like Ukraine, Eastern Europe and so forth, um, North Korea, these guys are making use of artificial intelligence in fields like money laundering at a far greater pace than the banking system itself. Yeah. Okay, let's pull us out of this nosedive because we got to wrap up the show. <laughs> we got to get we, we got to get optimistic go, again. Come on. We can't go out on this note. Mark, what gets you stoked about the future? We've talked about the scary stuff. Yeah. Over the next 30 years, you know, what inspires you, what excites you about the opportunities next 30 to 50 years? So look, I think for all of the fact that it looks very hard from where we're standing, the transition to a renewable economy is now well and truly underway, and it's only going to accelerate, and it's clearly accelerating finally. I think, you know, the numbers were so small at the beginning, it didn't look like that acceleration was in place. It's been interesting talking to people who think about this full time. So Saul Griffith is an Australian academic who's done a lot of work in America and in Australia studying transition. And, you know, he said in a public talk that he gave a couple months ago, he was talking to the Biden administration and the Biden administration came to him and said, basically, what can we do to get every European a heat exchanger? right, a heat pump so that they could stop using Russian gas to heat their homes. And he's like, well, you could do it if you could manufacture them. You'll have to go talk to the Koreans and I think they'll be hard pressed. And so we're learning about what we need to do to manufacture this transition, but we're also learning that there's a lot of pieces that we still need along the way. Now, everyone looks at those and goes, oh my God, there's problems. I'm looking at those and going, oh my God, those are trillion dollar yeah. opportunities here. Yeah. And so it feels like part of our job as futurists is to help tweak people to seeing the opportunities in the transition yeah, exactly. rather yeah. than just seeing all of the roadblocks to it. You know, Brett, to your point earlier about the the tremendous costs, uh, you know, and, and the, the this kind of crazy addiction to oil that we have. Um, if we are able to convey to people 
that the cost of, of transitioning to renewable energy is far less than the cost of maintaining this fragile global supply chain of shipping yeah. shipping tankers of oil all over the world. This is why we have strategic air. Well, command we've got Mez Ramez Nam coming on in a few weeks. I'm sure we'll get into into that with Mez. Um, yeah. You know, and um, you know, but um, I, you know, the 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 stat that I use um, is that in the United States today, it is cheaper to deploy a new solar farm than keep an existing coal plant running. That's that's the the stat that I use today. But um, you know, um, in in just five years' time, um, you know, like that. That's even that's going to be out of date. Well, we'll stay tuned for that. Hey, Mark Pesci, what a great pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so very much for getting up early in Australia to join us on The Futurists. <laughs> how can Thank people, you. Mark, how can people find out about the new podcast, about the book, um, you know, and about what you're uh, what you're talking about? So my personal website is markpesci.com. And in fact, if people visit that, they will be able to have a play with that very first VRML browser that Tony and I created because I nice. found the code for it last year awesome. sitting on a server. And because nothing ever stops working in Windows, it still runs. <laughs> <laughs> and then if people want to listen to the podcast, that's at nextbillionseconds.com or just open up your favorite podcasting app and search for the next billion seconds. Awesome. Cool. Super. Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, we really appreciate it. And, um, you know, we'll, I, I feel like we should have you back on to dive into some more of the metaverse stuff as well in, in the future as, as that sort of unfolds. But uh, stay, uh, stay well and stay healthy down in Sydney. Thank you. And my pleasure. Uh, so that's it for the Futurist this week. If you're uh, a fan, um, make sure you leave us a five-star review and wherever it is you download the cast, uh, you know, put it out on social media, invite your friends to listen to it. All of that helps us uh, get some traction, which of course helps us find sponsors then to pay for the, the production of the show, which keeps the content going. So, um, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, above all, um, you know, tell us what you want out of the show. Tell us who you'd like us to interview next. We've got some great guests coming up, um, some new sci-fi authors that we've already booked for this. As I said, Ram Nam and, and others are coming on the show in the future. So stay tuned for that content. But one thing is for certain, the future is coming and we'll be here next week and we'll see you in the in future. In the future. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at futuristpodcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.